will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm so thankful for that. <laughs> On my worst days, it's such a good thing to be reminded that God is doing a work in my life and He's going to complete it. My role, my task in all this is to just keep looking to Him. To stay on my knees before Him and just, even in the worst of floundering, to turn back to Him because He will complete what He began. But that's not easy, necessarily. The completion of a work, the maturing of a person. If you've been a parent or are a parent, you know it's not easy to help a child mature into adulthood. And sometimes it takes stretching us. You know, I, thinking about having just time of prayer, as simple as that is, having the body pray for the body. Brothers and sisters, just look around and pray. During worship, oh no, people are getting up now. And there are those who would say, are you guys going Pentecostal on us? And the, those of you with a Pentecostal background will be sitting there going, yes, yes. And those of you with a non-Pentecostal background are going, no, no. Somewhere in the middle, the Lord's saying, it's not about being Pentecostal or non-Pentecostal. It's about loving each other. Amen. And it's about praying for each other. And it's, it's about, you know, cutting out the constant looking at the back of each other's heads and starting to look at each other's hearts. And so it wasn't an exercise really to stretch us, but if it stretches us, good. And I hope and, and I pray that we have more opportunity as a fellowship to be in fellowship with each other both in and outside of this barn, to be stretched. I mean, being stretched is a good thing. Again, it's not comfortable. There are pains and growth, but it's necessary. God will use various means to stretch us. I'm going to talk about one of those this morning, and some of you may disagree with what I'm about to teach. Some of you will agree wholeheartedly and, and walk out of here saying, Yes! But I want to warn you ahead of time, I heard something recently that made me cringe. And it was the phrase Pastor Rick said, Please, don't make that your standard of faith. As a matter of fact, if I ever hear anybody in this body say, Well, Pastor Rick said, you will receive a sharp rebuke from Pastor Rick because that's not where your faith lies. Or, Well, Pastor Les said, Hey, even more so. <laughs> you don't base your faith or your trust in the Lord on what any man says. You base it on the Word of God. And you base it on His Spirit speaking directly to you as evidenced and proved by the Word. Pastor Rick said, Big deal. What did Jesus say? And that's our focus. If it's based on what Pastor Rick says, then you're going to come to places and study where you say, I'm just not going to accept that. Because I know what Pastor Rick did yesterday. I saw how he was yelling at his kids in the mall. I didn't, but just keep making an example. I know about something he was involved in. I know of a relationship that I think is questionable over here. This guy in business over here is a bad dude and Pastor Rick seems to be hanging out with him a lot. So I'm not going to listen anymore to what Pastor Rick said. Or, on the other hand, you start to take lock, stock, and barrel everything that comes out of a pastor's mouth just because he has a title. Please, don't ever do that. This morning, what we talk about... I ask you to pay attention as we study the Word. To follow along in your own Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll pass one out to you. In fact, you can just raise your hand if you need a Bible. But you need to follow along in your own Bible. And then pray about what we talk about. And ask the Lord what He thinks. And then you respond based on that. Fair enough? Well, Father, we come before you this morning as 
incomplete vessels as unfinished works saved absolutely if, if in fact we have given our lives to Jesus Christ and for those who haven't Lord I pray you would motivate and compel them and invite them today but Father we come to you as, as works in progress and we invite you to stretch us even make us uncomfortable if it will increase our faith and our trust in you if it will help us to know you better And Lord Jesus, as we open up the pages of Scripture this morning, we pray that you will use another tool that I've noticed you use from time to time to remove our faith from the things in this world and place it on things above, specifically on Jesus Christ. It's my greatest hope this morning that we will begin to shift some of our mentality. But you alone can do this, Holy Spirit. And so we invite you to, to be our teacher and our our compeller as we study your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. I had determined to go ahead chapter 10 we did 7, 8, and 9 on Wednesday night and I told the Wednesday night crowd that we'd go back and spend some more time in 7 but the more I thought about it the more I thought well we covered it we spent a lot of time in chapter 7 so I was ready to go on to chapter 10 and I spent all day Thursday studying chapter 10 which is good news because I'm a third of the way or so into study for Wednesday but Friday morning Friday morning I woke up and realized that there was not chapter 10 that we were supposed to talk about. There was something in chapter 7 that we needed to go back and look at. So let's, let's read through this. I'm just going to read you the chapter to start with. 2 Kings chapter 7 verse 1. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel. That would be about seven quarts of flour. And two measures of fourteen quarts of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on, hand, on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? And then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come, and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live, and if they kill us, we will but die. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even their camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp... They entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from their silver and golden clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. But we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied, and the tents just as they were. Well, the gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. The king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry, and they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we'll capture them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city, 
Behold, they will in any case be like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. In other words, it doesn't make any difference whether we send someone or not because we're dead either way. Well, they took, therefore, two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of the Aramaeans, saying, Go and see. Then they went after them to the Jordan. And behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment, which the Aramaeans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramaeans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold, surprisingly enough, for a shekel. And two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate and he died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. And then it repeats this part of the story. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Interesting story. It's a great story. I mean, I, just the picture alone of those four little shepherds or, or lepers crossing the hill and coming into the camp of the Aramaeans thinking that Aram was going to either kill them or take them captive or, or brutalize them in some way. They came over the hill and the camp is completely empty. It's a ghost town. Empty of people but full of supplies. And who could have known? Who could have had any idea what the Lord was about to do? Now, Friday morning I woke with a start. And literally, there was a three-word phrase that I woke up to. And it was going around and around and around in my head. And I don't know if it was the Lord getting my attention or if it was just me ruminating over things I had studied last week. Now, usually when this kind of thing happens, I go straight to my office, grab my Bible, and I start to study. I didn't have time to do that on Friday. I up and showered and got out of the house and I, I was meeting uh, Jeff and Paul and we ended up going down to Lake Stevens to look at a, a church building down there just get some ideas. It was a Lake Stevens Calvary Chapel, pretty cool building. But I could not shake this phrase. It just stuck with me. So later in the afternoon, I came back home and I opened up my Bible and I looked up the usage of this phrase. I, I knew I'd heard it several times in Scripture and I discovered that it is used about five times. Before I get there, something else to tell you, I was driving to Anacortes Friday morning and uh, I had my little new $29.99 hands-free listening device I got in Costco, you know, so I can be legal now while I talk on the phone. And so I dialed up my friend Chris from Southern California. Chris has been up here from time to time. He sat in on the drums. He's a, he's a great friend. We've known each other since junior high. Oh, I have stories. But Chris and his wife Diane have been working with a church that got planted in Southern California, working out of a movie theater. It's a church that actually has a large contingency in Australia. And they came and kind of got together with the church that was already there and, and took it over. It wasn't a, a hostile takeover, but kind of came together to make this thing work. And as I, I talked to Chris on Friday, he, he was saying that they're in a position right now where they may be folding. Which really was disappointing. I've, I've worshipped there a couple times when we've been down on vacation. Very cool church. Really cool what they're trying to do. But he said, you know, the issue is the offerings. The downturn in the economy has hit them so hard they cannot afford the rent in the place that they're in. They cannot afford the equipment. They cannot afford the staff. They're having to let all the staff go. And it's the economy. It's the economy that's, that's killing this particular church. Well, once again, this three-word phrase came to my mind. And I began thinking about the bridge and thinking about our economy and how we're doing. And I'll tell you, just right up front, for the first four years of our existence, the economy of the bridge, the giving at the bridge, has been staggering. Unbelievable. I mean, from day one. It hasn't been so much this last year, 2008. Don't hear guilt in that. It's just reality. But here's the thing, gang. It's the economy. 
Duh. I mean, when it's costing you twice as much even to get in the car on a Sunday morning and drive here, it is that much more difficult to try and give financial support. And so we all tend to tighten the purse strings and and to to dial down a little bit in in our finances. And one of the first places that gets affected worldwide, not just the bridge, not just this church in Southern California, but everywhere, is the church. That's the first place because people say, hey, you know what, that is, what, what's the phrase for it? It's, um, it's not fixed, but it's a very a discretionary. Giving to church is a discretionary part of your income. Hmm. Boy, when put like that, that does not sound good to me. My giving to the Lord is discretionary. If I've got it, I give it. If I don't, I won't. As I thought about this, part of me said, well, wait a minute, God doesn't need money to save lives. This is what I told Chris on the phone. God, you guys can do this without money. Meet in the house. You know? Start, go back to smaller. It doesn't necessarily mean God's shutting you down just because the people aren't giving. We'll, we'll dial back. Get out of that movie theater and, and meet somewhere that's inexpensive or free until the Lord builds it back up. Because God doesn't need money to save lives, and yet Jesus said something shocking. Listen to this. Luke chapter 16, verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Unrighteous wealth is simply worldly wealth. It's how you spend your money. Money is not a righteous thing. I know some pastors on TV might say otherwise, but it's not. Money is a a thing that that can be used. And, And Jesus says, he doesn't say store up worldly wealth. He certainly doesn't say, hey, become servants of worldly wealth. Go after it. He says, listen to me, Jesus says, use it. Use your money for the kingdom. Put your money where your faith is. Not my words. It's not Pastor Rick said. Jesus said... If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. People hear this and they go, I don't know if that sounds Jesus-like. Maybe that's one of those things that just kind of slipped into Scripture that he didn't really say, but they were a little low on funds in the first century church, so someone stuck it in. But Jesus did say this. What am I supposed to use money for? Jesus said to make friends. Am I supposed to buy friends? How does that work? The Bible Knowledge Commentary, which, by the way, I would recommend is an excellent, excellent commentary for helping in your study through the Scriptures. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says the following. The disciples were to use wealth to gain friends. The disciples would then be welcomed into eternal dwellings because the disciples' wise use of wealth would help lead others to believe the message of the kingdom and bring them to accept that message. In other words, while the root or or the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10, the wise, shrewd, biblical use of money can actually be for eternal kingdom purposes. Now stop and think about this just for a moment. How's the current economy affecting you personally? I was so excited when we moved into our house because we were getting off natural gas and going to propane and I thought, this is great, it's going to save all kinds of money. (laughs) Propane is gas. And as the gas prices go up at at the pump, guess what goes up in my house? The propane! It's killing me! It's unbelievable! Food prices are up. Who would have thought? Well, of course, because they use gas to transport the food, so the groceries are going to skyrocket. It affects everything, doesn't it? We are paying through the nose like never before. I look at at my list of bills on a monthly basis, and I can't believe. I would have literally dropped over dead ten years ago had I looked at what we're paying right now just to pay the normal bills. You know what I mean. You're looking at the same stuff. How's the economy affecting you personally? Travel is down. Consumer confidence is down. And while politicians blame each other 
And I love the fact that it's either McCain or Obama's fault, and they're not even in office yet. It's just incredible. And the media blames big oil and President Bush. And everybody's looking for someone to blame. There's a far greater economic issue facing the church today. And once again, the three-word phrase comes right back into my mind. All right, what is it already? Hold on. I'll give it to you in Hebrew. How about that? For it's a little easier. In Hebrew, it's just two words. Arubah Shamayim. Arubah Shamayim. It's only used five times in all of Scripture, two times in our study this morning, two times in the book of Genesis, and just one other time after that. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Genesis 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged, and the fountains also of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. That's what I woke up to Friday morning. Windows of heaven. Windows of heaven. Windows what? Windows of heaven, Rick. The phrase used twice in our story, windows of heaven. Now I start with the Genesis verses because you need to understand this word windows doesn't just mean a glass pane with, with you know, a nice look to it. The word windows, translated in the New American Standard Bible, literally means floodgates. The floodgates of heaven were open. That's why it was used as a description for the flood. And in the flood, when we study Genesis, and it's a fascinating study, the waters not only came from above, they came from underneath. God opened up the floodgates of the seas, and the water came up as well as it came down. It was a deluge both ways, gang. Frightening, frightening time. But it was an absolute outpouring of the water in God's judgment of the earth. The next three times this phrase is used in Scripture, it is indicative of a different kind of flood. Go back to our story this morning. Look at verse 1. Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time for a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Israel at this time is in dire straits. They are in, the kingdom of Israel is in the worst position they have been since their inception. They would be in a worse position a little bit later on when the Assyrians wipe them out. But at this point, they've never been so bad off. The Arameans have the capital city of Samaria under siege, and the citizens of the city of Samaria have turned to cannibalism. Things are so bad. They have an argument there between a couple of women going on. And one woman calls out to the king of Samaria, Jehoram, and she says, Oh king, help me. And he says, How in the world can I help you? God can't help you. I can't help you. He's bitter. And he is faithless. And he doesn't believe God can be of any service at all. But he says, Well, what's the problem? And she goes, Well, it's just not fair. This woman and I determined that we were going to boil and eat my son yesterday, and then we would boil and eat her son today. Well, we boiled and ate my son yesterday, and today she's hidden her son so that I can't find it. That's how bad it was. Book of Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 9 says, Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. 650 years earlier, Moses had prophesied this very event would happen. Deuteronomy 28.53, he said, You shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, until the Lord your God has given you, whom the Lord your God has given you, during the siege and distress by which your enemy will oppress you. And I think of my own three children. I can't even imagine being in such dire straits that I would look at Corey or Hannah or Hayden. Although Hayden's got some good meat on the back of his <laughs> calf. That, you know, I don't know. Just for nibbling on. Talk about an economic downturn. The people of Samaria were beyond hope. It wasn't even a matter that they didn't have any money. There was no food. It's bad when, it's so, when there's no food to the point that you start to eat living things. In fact, even in our story, you notice that they were out of horses. Well, let's send out the horses that we have left. Well, what had happened to the horses that were there? They had been eaten. 
They were eating anything they could just to survive. It was so absolutely desperate. We haven't gotten there in America. Well, the economy is a little tight. Nothing like the siege of Samaria. But then Elijah, or Elisha, the prophet, stands up and he says something unbelievable. He doesn't say the siege will lift. He doesn't say eventually food will get back. It's going to get back. You know, it's going to take some good you know, economic stimulus packages. He didn't say it's, it's going to take some, some importing, but eventually we're going to get there. We'll be okay. He says this time tomorrow, this time tomorrow, flour, seven quarts of flour is going to sell for pennies. This time tomorrow, 14 quarts of barley. Right there in the city gate, people are going to be passing it around and handing it out and buying it for cheap. Can you imagine if I said this time tomorrow gas is going to be above 25? You'd laugh me off the stage. It's not possible. How much more impossible was it for Samaria to be high on the hog with all the food they could have within 24 hours? That's what the prophet promised was going to happen. Verse 2, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And then Elisha said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. I want to give you four things to consider through this story this morning. And the first one is the royal officer's chide. His chide. He chides the prophet. He says, come on. He says what most of us would probably say, if not out loud, in our hearts. This time tomorrow? Right. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. His reference to the windows of heaven is made in confidence. It's not made in confidence, but in contempt. Come on. Even if the Lord should open up the windows of heaven, even if God were about, about to bust open the floodgates of blessing... How could this thing possibly be? And the royal officer is missing a fundamental truth that even some of our most faithful believers come to doubt or forget from time to time. And that's simply this. There really are windows in heaven. There are windows in heaven. God does have the capability to give, open up floodgates of blessing. He is capable of passages of provision. To open wide channels of absolute giving. God can do this. And He can do it like that. He can turn things around on a dime. And He knows how to provide for His people. Now listen to me. The Lord says there is a way to guarantee this. A sure way to see these windows open wide. And outside of our story in Genesis, it's the only other time the phrase windows in heaven is used. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And I know what some of you are thinking. Because the second the word tithe comes out of my mouth, hearts will close. I hope yours hasn't. Theologically, this is a debate that still goes on in the church whether tithing is legalistic or whether tithing is, is a good biblical standard. And we've talked about tithing here before. I think I've made my perspective on it pretty clear. But I want to ask you to hang with me and not to shut your own windows, the windows of your hearts, but to listen and consider what this passage is telling us. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And by the way, the tithe means 10%. Just to be clear, if you're giving and you're giving 6%, it's not a tithe. It's giving. And it's fine. It's giving, though. It's not tithing. Tithing is 10%. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not talking about the prosperity gospel. And I would like to go on record as saying I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. The idea that if I give my money to God, He automatically blesses me. A quid pro quo proposition. This morning, I dropped my tithe in the box, and boy, on the way home, I could just feel God scratching my back. I give to him, he gives to me, that's the way our relationship is. If that's the case, that's really sad to me. 
In fact, never, never, never give for the purpose of receiving. That runs counter to the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, who did not give to receive. He gave to give. And He calls us to do the same, to be people who give, not looking for what we get in return. So how do you connect the windows of heaven with a person's giving? Well, first of all, I didn't. The Lord did. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me in this and see if I won't pour out a blessing for you until it overflows. But did you catch the reason why God said to bring the tithe into the storehouse? It wasn't so that you could get the blessing. It was so there would be food in his house. Bring the tithe so there is food in my house. Now hold that thought for a moment and go back to the story. While Samaria is slain with starvation, four lepers sitting on a wall have a talk. And this is the second point. We saw the royal officers chide. Now we see the lepers' chance. The lepers' chance. Verse 3. There were four lepers' men at the gate, at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here on the gate? Four lepers' men. One was named, I believe, Humpty Dumpty. Not sure, but they were sitting on a wall. And as they sat there, they began to have this conversation. We will enter the city where the famine is in the city and we'll die there. But if we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore come, let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. And so they arose and off they went over to the camp of Aram. And it is comical to me what happens here. Because if they shuffle up over the top of the hill, expecting to see an army, God has used four lepers... Four unclean, insignificant men and made it sound like it was a massive coalition of three armies and the Arameans were freaked out and fled. Leaving everything all the way to the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan to the other side dropping stuff as they're going because they've got to get out of there. They've got to save their lives <laughs> because the armies are coming. Four lepers. Tough army. Turn over to to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bibles. Keep that finger in 2 Kings. Philippians chapter 3. Now something we may have forgotten as inflation threatens and gas prices rise is the reality of Christianity is that regardless of how bad things may get in any economy, there is always hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always hope. We may be sitting on the wall And things look so bleak, if we try to go back, man, there's death there. If we stay where we are, there is death here. But we can always, in Jesus Christ, listen, we can always go forward. We can always move ahead. Paul understood this. It's a fundamental principle, fundamental principle of faith that Paul expresses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Where he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I, listen, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The lepers took a chance. They knew going back was death. They knew staying where they were was death. But they took a chance. We'll go forward and just see what happens. But I'll tell you something. They find salvation there, and there's a truth that you never find salvation going back. Some therapists might disagree with me. You don't find salvation by going back and rummaging in the past and worrying through or re-guilting yourself through those things or even trying to find that old shape. That's, that's not where salvation lies, gang. It lies forward. We go forward in Jesus Christ. 
Some of you have been hurt by legalistic churches demanding a tithe. Telling you that if you don't give 10% of your income, you are not as righteous as those who do. And that's not biblical. But can I just say to you, if you have come from that perspective, if you have just kind of a negative sense, anytime the word tithe is even used, you just kind of go, ugh. Let me encourage you, don't go back. Don't look back. Go forward. Some have given of their time or their money or their energy to important causes only to be so disappointed at their failure, they're stuck. Don't look back. Don't sit where you are. Go forward in faith. Go forward in the Lord. Take a chance on the Lord. And by the way, the word chance melts away when Jesus enters the picture. Because it's not chance. It's a much more eternal word, and that's hope. I don't even need to use the word chance. Take a chance on Jesus. No, put your faith, put your hope in Jesus. Because chance may disappoint you, but hope never disappoints. God is in the hope business. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writes, We exult in our tribulations. Doesn't sound like prosperity gospel to me. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And this is, by the way, why I never connect personal giving to personal prosperity. I could be the greatest giver in the world and still have hard times. I could still get hit financially. I could still lose everything. Look at the life of Job, who did it all right and lost it all. Prosperity gospel does not work biblically, gang. Even money only has its real value as it's invested in eternity. And that's what I want you to hear today. Invested in eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How big is your boat? How nice is your home? What kind of cars are you driving? Where are you putting your money? Because Jesus said, not Pastor Rick, Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's where I put my love. That's where my desire, where my focus is. Let me tell you something about our boats, our homes, and our cars. They're all going to burn. And they're all going to look really bad in that day. They are inconsequential eternally. Oh, I can go home and sell the boat. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> You're missing it if you're thinking, oh, okay, we've got, to, we've got to downsize and get a smaller place. No. The question is, how are you using what you've got? How are you using not only your material things, but your unrighteous wealth? And that's what money is. It's just unrighteous wealth. How are we using it for the kingdom of Jesus Christ? How are we investing what we have in Jesus and in what matters to Him? Listen, if you're having hard times, don't go back and go on. And I'll tell you, the number one uh, prescription, I think, for financial hard times is begin tithing. Not because it makes you more righteous. Because it forces the issue of faith. It puts you into that place where you say, Alright, <laughs> okay Lord, this is impossible. It was for Samaria. This won't work out on paper. It never does. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. Let me jump out there and see what you do. And by the way, if your finances get worse, keep trusting Him. Because you can know something beyond the shadow of a doubt. You are investing in something eternal as opposed to material. Well, the four lepers went on. Look where it got them. Number three in your notes, the leper's cheerfulness. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. But we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. They start to feel a little guilty about this. Now therefore, come, they say, let's go and tell the king's household. And so they do, and the city ends up saved. And I love verse 9. Well, we, we camped on that one tonight because that, that seems to be a primary verse in this whole story. It is a day of good news, but the lepers were keeping silent. We talked about Wednesday how that's a picture of us, gang. Lepers who are saved... 
But are we keeping silent with the message of the gospel of Jesus? Are we thrilled in our salvation to the point that we show up at the barn and man, we have our thing going on? It's good stuff. I got my friends here at the church and it's good stuff. And, and I'm saved and that's good stuff. And when I'm with my non-Christian friends, I'm hiding my treasures. Tucking it away, you know. Saved lepers. Who would have thought the Lord could provide in such a dramatic way? Who could have guessed four hungry lepers could be mistaken for a massive military coalition? But see, that's the difference between our economy and God's economy. And I'll tell you what, if given the choice, I'd really rather function in God's economy even than in the U.S. economy, which in recent decades people thought was absolutely impenetrable. The almighty dollar which is struggling to survive. And I look at it and think, boy, I'm glad I'm invested in God's economy. Because that one is one that will never fail. Gang, for you and me, a few loaves and some fishes are just that. A few loaves and some fishes. But in God's economy, it is a meal, a picnic for 5,000 people. For you and, and for me... We look at a siege of Samaria and we think impossible for God. It's, it's a snap of the finger. We have to remember that our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Which is a phrase I use from time to time, especially when I'm doing my bills. Lord, I know you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Could I have one? <laughs> Take care of the meat situation at home? Psalm 50 verse 10. By the way, isn't it about time to slaughter a cow? I think we're getting close yeah. <laughs> Psalm 50 verse 10 We'll have a cow slaughtering party for the bridge It'll be a great fellowship time <laughs> Psalm 50 verse 10 The psalmist writes For every beast of the forest is mine The cattle on a thousand hills God says I know every bird of the mountains And everything that moves in the field is mine and I love this verse God says if I were hungry I wouldn't tell you For the world is mine And all that it contains God's economy He's got everything So who are you going to trust? McCain, Obama, or Jesus? I don't know who I'm voting for. Amen. The lepers in our story here, gang, they stumble into God's economy and they start eating and drinking and carting away spoils of war, but in their cheerfulness, they realize something. They realize, wow, this is great, but, but it's not about us. It's not about our salvation. The whole city, the whole city is starving. Keep your finger there and go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 6. And listen very carefully to what Paul prescribes to the church at Corinth, which by the way was a very materialistic church in a seaport town that was having all kinds of problems. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, Rick, that sounds like prosperity gospel stuff. No, it's not. Because you have to pay attention as to what the reaping and the sowing really is. It's not personal financial gain. Listen to me. Verse 7, listen to Paul. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You Bible students know cheerful is the Greek word hilarion, where we get hilarious. I've talked about this before, hilarious giving. The whole idea that someone would, would drop a check or some money into the box in the back by the door and start doing a little jig. That's what he's talking about, hilarious giving. Whew, this feels great. Let's do it again. Come on. And God is able, listen, to make all grace abound to you. Oh, good. So if I give, God gives back to me. Yeah, but, but listen to why. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's not giving you more seed to store up in barns. He's given us more seed for sowing. And he says, uh, let's see, for seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is the harvest of my righteousness? 
I'll tell you what, the harvest of righteousness is not how good you look. The harvest of righteousness is the number of people who have accepted Jesus Christ because you introduced them to Him. That is the harvest of righteousness. That's the harvest that we look forward to. Paul says, who is our hope or our crown of exaltation at the coming of Jesus Christ? Is it not you? He describes as a crown people who are saved by Him proclaiming the gospel. A crown. Can you imagine that? Stepping foot into heaven and being surrounded by people who are so excited that they're there because you were used by the Lord to tell them about Jesus. Because you took your money and put it into kingdom work instead of to yourself. That's what Paul's talking about. He says he's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which doesn't mean you become a Democrat. It means you become a gracious giver. This is where we get the idea of the phrase, you can't outgive God. The more I give to the Lord, whether it's financially or of myself in any kind of ministry or service, the more I give, the more He's going to pour back out to be used for more giving. which through us is producing thanksgiving in God. Hilarious giving is when we, like the lepers, recognize our salvation to such a degree that we delight in sharing the wealth. That we become a fellowship of believers, a group of people who say, you know what? I'm going to give, not because giving's down, but because I know that money is going to go to world missions. That money is going to go to the furtherance of the gospel. That money is going to go, yes, to the building of a church building. Now, some would would cringe at that. Because some of you have been through difficult church campaigns where they've extracted every last dollar from you to get a building built. Don't forget the purpose of building a building. It's to attract more people to Jesus Christ. Period. I got excited when we went down to Lake Stevens Calvary Chapel. We're walking around this building and, and they had along the wall. And my, my favorite thing about going and checking this thing out was on all the walls of all the hall, hallways were pictures. They were all large, I don't know, 10 by 17 or larger photographs of the Lake Stevens Calvary Chapel family. The family up at the river all enjoying fellowship together. The family gathered around in the river. Everybody, uh, you know, knee-deep in water while people are being baptized. I like that one. The family having a a fellowship dance in their main auditorium when they cleared out all the chairs to do that. The family meeting in small groups. All the way around. I'm walking and I'm I'm seeing and, and God's giving me vision for why would you build a church building? As a meeting place for family. For fellowship to develop. For people to be drawn in. A tool for ministry. Now here, here's the problem with church buildings. Is when we get over into the, into the area of church building for me. Monument to Pastor Rick. Or monument to the bridge. It's our church. Pretty nice. You're not a Christian? Well, don't worry about it. But that's where we meet. As opposed to the tool that God intends it to be for the kingdom. We are saved lepers, gang, with good news. Paul said in Romans 10.13, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him when they have not, whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Those men were lepers, but they had beautiful feet. That entire city of Samaria would recognize that as ugly as the leprosy was on their bodies, that those feet were the best feet in the entire world because those feet brought salvation and the news of salvation. My hope for the bridge, for this fellowship, is that we are a people with absolutely stunning feet. Beautiful feet because we are bringing the message of Jesus Christ. People of Israel would not have known their salvation if the four lepers had not shared generously. And please don't miss that point. Is it possible that what you drop in the offering box might actually have impact on the salvation of a person's soul? Yes, it is. And that's the right attitude, by the way, with which to give. I know that what's going, yes, you know what, yeah, there are administrative costs at the bridge. And there are salaries that are paid. I'm not worried about it. And if you question me on that, ask me how we started the bridge and we'll have that conversation. I'm not concerned about that. 
But when money goes into the tithing box, and I know I'm being crass a little bit here, but when money goes in, gang, it goes out. This church's purpose, and we've talked about this, to give 15% of everything that comes in to world missions. The money is going out. It's not $1,500. It's not a set amount. It's 15% of whatever you give immediately goes out the door. Before we pay any other bills, this church more than tithes. Because we recognize the reason why we're here is not about us. And money that would be set aside to, to provide for the building of a building. I hate building costs and expenses and all that stuff. I hate that we have to drill a well and, and put up a water tower. I don't, I don't want a water tower. I hate that we're going to have to sprinkler the thing. Although it might be fun to set those off during the service sometime. <laughs> But these are all things that the world requires, unrighteous wealth. Alright, so we'll do those things for what purpose? For the purpose of having a center of ministry on North Whidbey Island where we can reach people. Well, Rick, what about the barn? Well, the barn's great, but it is limited. We can't do much else here. We can't use it much more. Couldn't we just add another service? Yeah, where are we going to put the kids? Where are we going to take care of Sunday school? We already use three houses. And what about other things that we could do as a family for the kingdom right here? Well, I'm getting away from this a little bit. I'm just not sure if we've realized the real value in building a building on Troxel. It's not for our temporary comfort. It is for someone else's eternal condition. That's why we do it. That's why this church is here. If we lose that, we might as well shut the doors. Now again, I've done a lot of teaching over the years on tithing and on giving, but I think this is the first time I have ever said this. I know for me it was like a light bulb going off when God said, Windows of heaven, the generosity with which you determine to give has more to do with the gospel than it even does with increasing your personal trust in the Lord. So now that thought stunned me, because before I have always come from the perspective that my giving is a faith issue for Rick. Guess what? Far more than that, my giving is about getting the gospel out. It is about other people and not about me. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why people have trouble tithing, because they think, my faith is fine, so I don't need a faith test. I don't need to give 10% or 15% of my income. I don't have to do that because my faith is fine. Okay, well then forget your faith. How many lost people might be saved through our use of unrighteous wealth? Well, what about just having like more small group stuff? We're going to do that too. It's not an either or. How about, how about being a fellowship that really does put our money with our, where our mouth is? Where we say, Lord Jesus, I can tell you, based on my behavior, based on my giving, that other people were more important than my personal finances are. Okay? We, and I don't necessarily mean you and me, but I mean the church, we sit around and we debate whether tithing is biblical or legalistic. While just inside the city walls, people are dying of starvation. It's like the lepers had they stayed on the wall just talking about what they should do. It's like the lepers, when they found this great amount of spoil, start taking it for themselves, and then if they got into a debate, which didn't happen, thankfully, but what if they had? One leper says to the other, we need to go back and, and take this back into the city. And the other leper says, dude, that's legalistic. I can keep it for me and still trust God. That's what we do when we argue about tithing in the hallowed halls of our churches while people are eating each other alive. They are so hungry for the truth. How many of us, if we really believed it would save a life, would blow the lid off the 10% debate and start giving far more than that. I haven't heard that debate yet. Should we give 20%? How about 50? People don't ever have that argument. I'm just not into that 50%. Yeah, I'll give 40. Okay. I'm starting to realize, gang, the whole idea of our giving is what we can do for others as opposed to ourselves. The Lord challenged Israel, and I personally believe He challenges you and me to bring the tithe, whether it's 10% or as Paul says, to determine with the Lord what you're going to give, but be generous, be faithful, and do it. To bring their tithe so that they themselves could bring food into His house. That was the point. 
food in the house of the Lord. Jesus said again, Luke 16:9, make friends for yourself by the means of, un- of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Might it be that someday in the new kingdom, a person will come and thank you for the money you gave that built the building in which they first heard about Jesus Christ and were saved for all eternity? Is that a possibility game? Or maybe the money that you gave fed somebody who needed feeding and they came to faith in Jesus or supported a missionary such that the world could hear the word and be saved. The world is starving, so let's stop debating and start giving hilariously. Knowing that it's a choice we make like these four lepers to feed hungry souls. Number four and final point. The officer's choice. The officer's choice. The death of Abraham Lincoln was once called the last casualty of the Civil War. Well, Jehoram's royal officer in this story is the last casualty of the the siege of Samaria. Verse 19, the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled on him at the gate and he died. The royal officer chose not to believe that the Lord was about to open up the windows of heaven. And when the Lord did open those windows, he died after seeing them open. He saw the influx of the food. He saw the salvation, the relief. He saw it all and realized he was wrong to his own death how close gang was his own salvation and yet how far away he chided the windows of heaven and he ended up dying with an empty belly himself I want to show you one more thing because I believe that this man is a shadowy type of all Israel turn over in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8 this man is a shadowy type of Israel itself Amos chapter 8 verse 1 The prophet Amos begins speaking And by the way this is about 762 BC when Amos came along Which would be a hundred years after This particular siege The siege of Samaria So a hundred years later Amos says thus the Lord God showed me And behold there was a basket of summer fruit And he said What do you see Amos And I said a basket of summer fruit And the Lord said, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. What does a basket of summer fruit have to do with the end coming to Israel? Because in Israel, a basket of summer fruit would be the last fruit of the season. A basket of summer fruit would be it. God said, In the same way that this is the last fruit, when you look around at Israel, this is the last you're going to see of this people. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make a bushel smaller and a shekel bigger? to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile. It will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And two years after this declaration, a devastating earthquake hit Samaria and Hatzor and the surrounding region. It will come about in that day, verse 9 declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the time of mourning for an only son. At the end of it, it will be like a bitter day. And he's talking about the Assyrian attack on Israel, which a couple of years after this earthquake, no, 40 years after the earthquake, Israel will be gone. Completely driven out of the land. Now listen. Verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread, 
for a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. After the salvation from the siege of Samaria, Israel was about to set foot gang on a downward spiral, which we'll begin to study on Wednesday night, a downward spiral that will lead to their final and ultimate destruction. From chapter 10 on out through the book of 2 Kings, it gets more and more and more depressing, unfortunately, because it all falls apart. It all comes completely unraveled. What was once a great and glorious kingdom under Solomon ends up ravished and famine-stricken and destroyed and decimated. And Israel would be destroyed. Why talk about that? What's, what's the application here? I think, gang, as much as, as much as the royal officer was a picture of Israel, and as much as Israel then is a picture of this world, the world in which we live, which is famished, it's starving, eating each other alive because of despair, that things are not getting better. How does a non-Christian handle the current economy? I don't know. I don't know. If I were not a Christian right now, looking at the state of things in America and in the world around, I don't know how I would handle it. I would be scared to death. I'm not, I'm not worried at all. Because the Lord is in charge. We know better that things are not getting better in this world, but the best is yet to come because of Jesus Christ. So what then can the Lord do with my faithful and generous giving? What would happen here at the bridge if every individual here committed to faithful, generous giving, whatever that is between you and the Lord, whatever you've determined? Well, I've I've taught, I think tithing is a great place to start. It's a great standard to live by. I think there is great value in it. But if you got an issue with that, fine. Give 9%. 9.5. Give 9.99, but don't you give that tithe and you won't be a legalist. See how it works? Or give 15. Whatever you determine between you and the Lord, what would happen? All this to say, my friends, I think it's time we forget about ourselves and the personal benefits which come from giving or tithing. Let me be very blunt. Do you have your hands on some unrighteous wealth that the Lord might use better than you can? Better than I can? And if you don't believe faithful giving is essential to keeping the house of the Lord full of the food of His Word, don't give here. If you don't believe in this, if you don't believe that God has called us to bring food into His house, literally the food of His Word, and to feed a dying and starving world with the Word of Jesus Christ, don't give here. Give to Greenpeace. You know, save the seals. Or Code Pink or something. I'm sure they love your money. But if you believe God can really do something here, if you believe He really is at work, if you believe it's more than a sermon on a Sunday morning, then I challenge you to get beyond what you think you can and to trust the Lord with it. Malachi 3.10 again, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, the Lord says, if I will not open for you windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. You know what the blessing is that I'm looking forward to? It's hundreds of people packed around the pond waiting their turn to get baptized. I long for that day. It's hundreds of people gathered together, bellies full of the Word, hearts full of the Holy Spirit, worshiping, praising, having to be sent home because they just won't leave. That is the outpouring that Pastor Rick is looking for. Outlandish, ridiculous, hundreds of people literally standing out there in the manure watching people get baptized. Ridiculous. Windows of heaven, gang. Windows of heaven. Father, we believe in the windows of heaven. We believe that there are floodgates waiting to be opened wide when the church will just have faith. 
We believe, Lord, that the key to unlocking the, the bountiful blessings such that we can have dramatic kingdom impact has to do with our willingness to put what you've already given us to work for you. And Lord Jesus, I, I ask that you will help us to cut loose, to break free of the unrighteous wealth that has so much control over most of our lives. Father, I, I pray, I know there's some here this morning who have been struggling with and talking about and praying about and just putting off the whole issue of giving it all for a long time because they don't know how it's going to work in this economy. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to convict those hearts to trust you more. To convict every one of us. Lord, you stretch us a little bit by getting us out of our seats this morning to pray for each other and, and care for each other. Not that that was a big deal, but a little, little stretching maybe for some. Lord, I pray you stretch us on the other side. We hold so tight to our money. It is such a stronghold against our faith. And I'm asking, Lord, for an increase in faith for those who are a part of the Bridge Christian Fellowship this morning. An increase in faith that will show itself, yes, Lord, is an increase in our giving. Because we are convinced that you are at work here. In Jesus' name, amen.